The Westminster Confession of Faith was first published in 1646. It was the result of the hard work done by a group of men called the Westminster Divines. Their goal was to outline what they believed the Scriptures principally taught. And it has been said that the Church of Christ cannot be creedless and live. Thankfully, the Westminster Confession of Faith has been the creed of the Reformed Church for almost 400 years. This podcast seeks to point you to Christ, to help you navigate the Westminster Confession of Faith, and to see you understand what you believe and why you believe it. Welcome to This We Confess. Westminster Confession of Faith, Chapter 20, Of Christian Liberty and Liberty of Conscience, Paragraph 2. God alone is Lord of the conscience, and hath left it free from the doctrines and commandments of men, which are in anything contrary to his word, or beside it, in matters of faith or worship, so that to believe such doctrines or to obey such commands out of conscience, is to betray true liberty of conscience, and the requiring of an implicit faith, and an absolute and blind obedience, is to destroy liberty of conscience, and reason also. Welcome today to episode 60 of This We Confess, and today we consider the liberty of conscience. We're studying today chapter 20 of the Westminster Confession of Christian Liberty and Liberty of Conscience. And last time out, we considered some of the liberties which Christ has purchased for us. We are free from Satan's bondage, from dominion of sin. We have free access to God and we yield obedience to him out of a childlike fear of the Lord. All of these things and more are outlined in paragraph one, which speaks of our Christian liberty. But as we get into paragraph 2, the Westminster Divines consider the issue of conscience by stating, as the paragraph begins, God alone is Lord of the conscience. And I think today as we begin, we need to pause right here. God alone is Lord of the conscience. At first glance, it seems like a fairly acceptable statement. We believe it and we move on quickly into the rest of the paragraph. But let's for a second ask ourselves, What is the conscience? I once heard a sermon preached here in Northern Ireland where the very earnest preacher was wanting to tell his congregation that the conscience was the voice of the Holy Spirit. But that is certainly not supported biblically. Every man will have a conscience, whilst only those who are saved enjoy the blessing of the Holy Spirit dwelling within their hearts. So the conscience is not the inner voice of the Holy Spirit, and nor is the conscience, as we sometimes associate it with as children, the little angel on our shoulders. There's a devil on the other shoulder, and the angel and the devil fight it out, and often the angel wins. That's our conscience. Well, again, no, this has got very little to do with the biblical picture. The conscience is not the voice of the Holy Spirit, nor is the conscience the voice of a guardian angel. Instead, John Calvin is incredibly helpful. He says, when we have a sense of divine judgment, this is our conscience. 
It does not allow us to hide from our sins or suppress them, but it pursues us to a point of conviction. This sense brings us before God's judgment as a sort of guardian appointed for man to note and to spy out all his secrets. So for John Calvin, the conscience was an inner sense of divine judgment. It is exactly this that Paul is speaking about in Romans chapter 2. He says in verse 14, For when Gentiles who do not have the law by nature do what the law requires, they are a law to themselves, even though they do not have the law. Verse 15, They show that the work of the law is written on their hearts, while their conscience also bears witness, and their conflicting thoughts accuse or even excuse them. And so here is the conscience. It is something that every man, woman and child will have and it is that inner sense of divine judgment. So even those who have no regard of the Lord nor his commandments have that law written on their hearts and their conscience will accuse and even excuse them. Now today we also must say that the conscience, this inner sense of divine judgment, is not perfect. You will hear sometimes people saying, oh, follow your heart, or go with your gut, or what is your first reaction to something? I believe that when men and women speak this way, they are speaking of that inner voice, that conscience, that sense of divine judgment. But in some people, the conscience can bring them to a point where they are crippled by guilts and doubts that they do not have to carry. And indeed, in others, the conscience is so marred by sin that they do not lose a wink of sleep, even though they have committed vile acts which go against God's law. So, the conscience is not the voice of the Holy Spirit, and the conscience is not a guardian angel speaking on one's shoulder. And the conscience is not perfect. It too has been tainted and marred by sin. But the conscience is that inner sense of God's divine judgment. For the law of God is written on our hearts, and the conscience acts as a witness or a guardian, which accuses and sometimes excuses. And so, as we have just defined what the conscience is, it goes without saying that God alone is the Lord of the conscience. But if it goes without saying, then why did the Westminster Divines feel the need to say it? They said it because they worked and ministered at a time when many men, women and children were under the bondage of the doctrines and commandments of men. You see, this has always been the problem in the Christian church, and I suspect it always will be the problem. There are those who perhaps from a well-meaning perspective and those from a slightly less well-meaning perspective will seek to impose on the Church of Jesus Christ rules and regulations and doctrines and commandments which have nothing to do with the Word of God. And so this is the reason why the divine state that God alone is the Lord of conscience. It is, as Paul writes in Romans 14 and verse 4, who are you to pass judgment on the servant of another? It is before his own master that he stands or falls, and he will be upheld, for the Lord is able to make him stand. Ultimately, this speaks of every single Christian. Our Lord is Christ. We do not live and serve and worship and adore our rulers, our leaders, our ministers. 
the sole king and head of the church is the Lord Jesus Christ, and the Lord alone is the Lord of the conscience. This statement should cause in us great thanksgiving for the liberty that is ours in Jesus. Just as paragraph 1 outlined the many freedoms that Christ has won for us, so here in defining the fact that Christ alone is the Lord of the conscience, we find liberty once more. We are free from the doctrines and commandments of men, which are in anything contrary to God's word, or beside it, in matters of faith or worship. What do the divines mean when it comes to this? Well, some modern-day examples, perhaps, will show you that these issues are still very much relevant. I once heard a Northern Ireland preacher who was urging his congregation to have lots of children. It was their Christian right and Christian duty, and they should have lots and lots of children, primarily to see Ulster always remaining British. Was this a biblical commandment? Was this something that God expects of his people? Does God set a biblical standard that you should have this amount of children, and if you don't, then you're somehow not a proper Christian? What if you can't have children? What if you're not married? The preacher who urged this on his congregation was setting out a doctrine and commandment of man. Or perhaps, more locally in your own fellowship, should the national anthem be played as part of certain services? What about those members of our community who do not see the national anthem as their national anthem? Should a church put a flag outside its building? I'm sorry to say that many fellowships have been divided over such issues, but they are commandments and doctrines of men. Or in the old worship wars, the organ is the only instrument that should be used. It is a biblical instrument. It is the standard and anything else, like a guitar, well, these are certainly innovations of the devil. But is this true? Is the organ the only instrument that should be played in church? Some would argue that no musical instrument should be played in church. So what is to be done? Or what about fellowships where wearing your Sunday best is vitally important? Imagine the shock and horror of someone turning up in a pair of jeans. You wouldn't go and see the Queen that way, we're told. But again, is this a biblical standard? Or what about your minister? Your new guy doesn't wear the collar much anymore. He doesn't robe up the way your previous minister did. And certainly some in the congregation are deeply unhappy about this. Ministers should wear robes, isn't that right? Or what about Christmas? It's the 12th of December, as I put together the podcast. Should a church have a Christmas tree? Or should a church go to war against their new minister who suggests that the Christmas tree should not be in the meeting house? My friends, I could go on, but I hope you see that very quickly all sorts of churches in all sorts of ways fall into the traps of the doctrines and commandments of men. Anyone who insists about a Christmas tree or certain dress or a certain type of music or a standard about a national anthem or how many children you should have or what Bible version you should use, well, they are attempting inadvertently to put your conscience into bondage once more. You are free from the doctrines and commandments of men that are in any way contrary to God's word or beside it in matters of faith or worship. It is, as Peter said in Acts 5 and 29, we must obey God rather than men. And as Paul urges in 1 Corinthians 7 and 23, we were bought with a price and so therefore 
we are not to become bondservants of men. The liberty here is extraordinary. How many churches would be free from hassle and dispute and division if they understood liberty of conscience, if they respected it, and if they decided not to impose extra-biblical standards upon the congregation? We are free from the doctrines and commandments of men because we have the Word of God, and what the Word says is what we believe, and what the Word demands is what we follow. And so if there's ever any discussion in our local fellowships about any particular issue, our question should always be, what does the Bible say? Does the Bible state that all fellowships must put a Christmas tree up in the meeting house? Does the Bible state that Christians must dress a certain way when they come to church? Does the Bible say that there is only one English translation of the Bible which is deemed acceptable and all others are sure signs of apostasy? What does the Bible say should be the first question we ask in all areas of discussion and debate. When it comes to matters of faith, what we believe, and matters of worship, how we are to approach God and sing his praise, then the Bible is our supreme standard. And therefore, our conscience is free from the doctrines and commandments of men which go against the plain teaching of Scripture. When it comes to worship in the Reformed Church, we have long spoken about the regulative principle, which states that we only do in worship what is commanded in God's Word. And so we do not open up our fellowships to all sorts of innovations, all sorts of things which have no biblical mandate, the principle that we follow regulates our practice and is founded upon the clear teaching of Scripture. Anything else is to leave Christian men and women open to abuse, abuse of their conscience, where preachers and churches and others place upon them standards that have no biblical mandate. Our conscience is free from the doctrines and commandments of men in faith and worship, and the Lord alone is the Lord of our conscience. The divines continue to tell us that if we fall into these traps and we believe man's doctrines and commandments out of conscience, is in effect to betray true liberty of conscience. Paul writes in Galatians 5 and verse 1, For freedom Christ has set us free. Stand firm, therefore, and do not submit again to a yoke of slavery. And in Colossians 2 and 20 to 23, Paul writes, If with Christ you die to the elemental spirits of the world, why, as if you were still alive in the world, do you submit to regulations? Do not handle, do not taste, do not touch, referring to things that all perish as they are used, according to human precepts and teachings. These have indeed an appearance of wisdom in promoting self-made religion and asceticism and severity to the body, but they are of no value in stopping the indulgence of the flesh. This is what is at stake in matters of faith and worship and conscience. If we accept the doctrines and commandments of men which go against the plain teaching of Scripture, then we are once again taking on a yoke of slavery. If we believe these extra-biblical additions, then we are believing human precepts and teachings, teachings which have an appearance of wisdom but are only promoting self-made religion. They are of no value, says Paul in Colossians, and we must guard ourselves from them. 
And therefore, we are to listen to the word of God constantly, regularly. We are to hear it preached. We are to read it for ourselves. We are to study it in smaller groups within our churches. It is the word and the word and the word which guides and rules and regulates. And it is the standard by which all other teaching stands or falls. If believing such doctrines and commandments out of conscience has betrayed true liberty of conscience, then as this paragraph closes, the divine state that liberty of conscience is destroyed as well as reason by the requiring of an implicit faith and an absolute and blind obedience. What do the divines mean when they speak of an implicit faith? An implicit faith states that you believe whatever your church teaches, even if you don't know it personally. You believe whatever your church teaches, even if you don't know it personally. I think we see this most clearly in the teachings of the Church of Rome. Rome states that when Mary was born, she was born without original sin. This is the Immaculate Conception. Many believe this refers to Jesus, but no, in Roman teaching it refers to Mary. Not only was Mary immaculately conceived, but she went on to live a life where she never engaged in sexual intercourse. She was a perpetual virgin. And then when Mary died, the assumption of Mary means that she was taken up into heaven. Some argue that she died and her body was taken, and others argue that she didn't die and she ascended up into heaven. Either way, this is the assumption of Mary. Now, none of these things can be supported biblically. Roman Catholics may try, but the scriptural standards do not give any credence to any of these doctrines. And yet, to be a Roman Catholic, even though you cannot prove these things to be true biblically, even though you cannot know them, you are to receive them with an implicit faith. Your church teaches them, your church believes them, and therefore you must have obedience to them. It is this that the divines speak of, that when a requirement for an implicit faith and an absolute and blind obedience destroys liberty of conscience and reason also. My friends, if you belong to such a church that requires you to believe anything and everything that your church teaches, then flee from that place. We are to be like the Berians in Acts 17 and verse 11. Now these Jews were more noble than those in Thessalonica, and they received the word with all eagerness, examining the scriptures daily to see if these things were so. As we approach the end of this paragraph, you may be left wondering why any of this matters. At times it can seem so obscure when the divines take a paragraph to discuss the conscience. What is the conscience anyway? Is it really that relevant? My friends, it really is. If we are to take this paragraph seriously, then it leads us on the road of true Christian liberty and liberty of conscience. To go the other way is a road of danger. There are still wolves in and among the flock of Jesus Christ. There are men and women who will seek to go to any lengths to get you to surround them, to praise them, to feather their own nest. These men and women have always been and always will be enemies of the church. And therefore for our protection, we must be in the word. We must guard our conscience against any extra biblical additions that come from those within and without the church. And not only that, 
but we must realize that we are weak men and women. I know many individuals whose conscience burns within them day and night, and it is because they have believed things which are simply not true. They cannot move on, they cannot forgive themselves, they do not believe that they have been forgiven, and their conscience is the reason why sleep escapes them. My friends, this is what false teaching does. It robs us of liberty, it robs us of our peace, it robs us of assurance. It gets us to a place where we wonder, have I done enough? It leads us on a journey where we think, have I believed correctly? It should never have been this way. It is for freedom that Christ has set us free. And so today, if your conscience condemns, today, if your conscience burns within you, today, if you have found yourself caught up in the extra-biblical doctrines and commandments of men, then run to Jesus. Run to Christ and listen to his word. Scripture does not teach everything. Scripture does not fill in every blank or cross every T or dot every I. And so when scripture is silent on any issue, we must be silent as well. We must refuse to create any doctrines or commandments of men which will ultimately burden the conscience of Christians. But while scripture is silent on many issues, it is certainly complete. And scripture principally teaches us what we are to believe concerning God and what duty God requires of man. And scripture remains our only infallible rule of faith and practice. And so, dear brothers and sisters, always remember, as the apostle writes, faith comes from hearing and hearing through the word of Christ. As always today, here are some questions for you to consider. Question 1. Define what we mean when we speak of conscience. Question 2. What question should be the one that we first ask in all areas of debate and discussion? Question 3. What do we as Reformed Christians mean when we speak of the regulative principle? Question 4. In this paragraph, the Westminster Divines speak of an implicit faith. What is an implicit faith? And question five. Give an example of the doctrines of men which cannot be known biblically or personally. That's all for today. As always, my name is Scott Woodburn. And until next time, this we confess. Thank you.